what we learned through our experiments is that if you have the ability to help someone, but your attention is drawn to others that unfortunately you cannot help, you're less likely to help that person because it doesn't feel as good. Hello, and welcome to the Decision Education Podcast, where I talk to experts and share tips on all things related to decision-making. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Sweeney, broadcasting from the Alliance for Decision Education, the educational nonprofit committed to the belief that better decisions lead to better lives and a better society. Imagine what a difference it would make in your life and the lives of those you love if we were all even a little better at making decisions. This podcast is for you, the adults, who are already out in the world making thousands of decisions every day and who want to get better at it. I hope you find it helpful. I'm excited to welcome our guest today, Dr. Paul Slovic. Paul is professor of psychology at the University of Oregon. He is the co-founder and current president of Decision Research, a trailblazing research institute working at the cutting edge of the decision sciences. Paul's research focuses on human judgment, decision-making, and risk analysis, including work examining psychic numbing and the failure to respond to mass human tragedies. In 2016, Paul was elected to the National Academy of Sciences, one of the highest honors a scientist can receive. Paul is also on the advisory council here at the Alliance for Decision Education. I met Paul while visiting the Decision Research Institute as a guest of his colleague and leader in the field of decision education, Dr. Robin Gregory. Welcome, Paul, and thank you for talking with us today. Thank you, Joe. Glad to be talking with you. I was wondering if you could just tell us in your own words a little about what you do and your path to getting here. <laughs> well, what do I do? I shuffle a lot of paper. I know that. I've been studying the psychology of risk and decision-making since 1959, believe it or not. So that's uh, more than 60 years. I was lured into it by a professor who I was given a job working for. Uh, Clyde Coombs was his name. And he was studying choices among gambles. And I got uh, hooked on that. I thought this is a fun thing for a psychologist to be studying. And 60 years later, I still study people's decisions about gambles. They're no longer simple to outcome abstract gambles in a laboratory, but they're now the gambles that we take in every uh, everyday life all, all around us, the things we're familiar with that create risk in our lives, you know, health, safety, uh, environment, government, all this, you know, decisions everywhere that involve risk. So one of the treats that I get as the host is to read ahead all the various things that our guests have written. And yours was just a blast. I mean, there, there's so much that you've thought about and written about. I thought what we could do is we talk about some of the research topics, and then we could talk about some of the applications that you could point us at as far as ways that we might utilize what you've discovered or have co-discovered to improve our own decision-making for ourselves and our organizations and our society. The first one that I wondered if you could talk about, I don't think most people will have heard of before, is the arithmetic of compassion. What are you talking about there? What, what is that? Right. So I got interested in the problem of genocide, you know, in the world in the 1990s when I, when I, well, I was interested, of course, I, I was a child during World War II and the Holocaust was taking place and we didn't know much about the Holocaust till probably, uh, you know, a decade or so after the, the decade after the war, the 1950s, when the stories started to come out and, you know, in graphic ways and we were, and the world was shocked. And as a teenager then, and it made a big impression on me. And then I didn't think about that for a long time. And then I was introduced 
Well, I worked with Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who, among many other other important contributions, developed something called prospect theory. And the centerpiece of prospect theory is something that they call the value function. You know, how do we value things, you know, like amounts of money or numbers of lives at risk as those, as those quantities increased? And what they showed was this function it wasn't a straight line. It was kind of a curved thing that the most, that we, the biggest effect on our valuation is when we go from zero to one, you know, from no lives at risk to one life, you know, one life at risk is very important to us. And, you know, people will risk their own lives to save a single person nearby who is in danger. So that life is very valuable. But then the, if there are two lives at risk, the value function shows, you know, starts to, it's not straight, it's not linear, it's, it starts to curve over and, you know, two isn't twice as big as one, you know, and it, it starts to, as the numbers increase, it starts to get flatter and flatter. And so, you know, you get, and, and I, it wasn't till afterwards that I figured out, well, why, why is that? And it, the problem is with our feelings. So what Daniel Kahneman has brilliantly described in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is that most of the time we rely on our, on our feelings, what he calls system one, kind of intuitive feelings, you know, to think about the world, as opposed to making, uh, you know, scientific calculations, which we are capable of doing, but is, that's a very difficult, and it's, it's hard work, and we, we usually don't do that. We, we take the easy way, way out and, and go with our feelings, because it, feels right to do that. It's easy, it's natural, and it usually works for us until it doesn't. So one of, the, one of the problems with feelings is that our feelings can't count. They're enumerate. And here's where we get back to the value function. So, so what Kahneman and Tversky you know, showed a beautiful picture of this function, which starts off very steep and then starts to flatten out. And, but they didn't really talk in detail about why that was. So that's what I got interested in and started to link that to the fact that this happens when we rely on our feelings. This curved function is the way our feelings change when we're thinking about greater and greater quantities of money or greater and greater numbers of lives. Uh, and let me, I can illustrate that very, very simply. So the difference between zero lives at risk and one is huge, as I mentioned earlier. And two, li- two people at risk, don't, it doesn't feel twice as concerning as one. We already are pretty concerned with one. And two, maybe we're more concerned, but not twice as many. And then let's supposing that I say, okay, now there are 87 people at risk. And then I say, oh, oh wait a minute, I made a mistake. There's 88 people. It's not 87, it's 88 you won't feel any different thinking about 88 lives at risk than 87, even though there's an additional valuable life there. It shows the inability of the feeling system to differentiate quantity as the, as the, as the numbers increase. The same thing with money. Difference between if you find $100, it'll make you happy. If you see $100 on the street, if you find 200 you won't feel twice as happy. You know, this sort of thing. Yeah. So... I was just going to ask if it goes for the positive as well as the risk. And it, it's the same thing. Positive and negative. And actually, this, this way of reacting is, is more general than just valuing things like money and lives. It, it, it's, a, it's also the way our sensory system responds to changes in, you know, like our, our visual system res- responds to changes in the brightness of a light. Or the, our auditory system responds to changes 
in the the sound energy, the loudness of a sound. Well, you know, in a quiet room, you can hear a whisper. So you go from you know no no sound to a, a quiet sound. You can hear that whisper. In a loud room, you're not going to hear that whisper. It takes a lot more change in the in the volume of the sound before you'll notice it in a loud room. It's called a just noticeable difference. Well, psychologists were studying this in Germany, you know, in the 1880s. They, you know, it was called the you know, field of psychophysics, and so it, the early studies of psychophysics had to do with with sensory changes. But what Kahneman and Tversky showed was that the psychophysics also works on on things that are you know social uh, values, not just sensory value things, but social values follow that same kind of function. Yeah, I, I remember reading Don Hoffman's book, Visual Intelligence. I don't know if you can uh, present it. No. Wonderful descriptions of our brain as a difference engine and how we find the edges of surfaces mm-hmm. and shapes. And it, you're, what you're saying with regard to our perception system being tied to it, that makes so much sense to me now. I, I was wondering, as I was reading your work, why why this would be happening. But So you're grounding it in the very way that our brain responds to differences and whether we can notice them or not. Yes, it's absolutely, you know, kind of built into the to our brains. And it's interesting to think, well, through evolution, why would we evolve to have this kind of response? Because will we become insensitive to the, to the large? Because that's not, not adaptive. Well, think about a, a system like the, you know, your, the mechanisms in your ear that transmit sound. Well, if you want to design a system that is sensitive to very low, quiet sounds that might, you may need to hear in order to survive, you know, you, you, have, you, you have these, these systems that are, that, are, that are making that happen. Well, now supposing that same system, you know, to make it equally sensitive to the large, you couldn't do it physically. I mean, it's just, right. you know, it would... It, You'd melt the brain it, if yeah, you sent that kind of electrical right, signal blow across. Things up, right. You know, and the same thing with the visual system. So, so nature decided it's better to get us sensitive to the small than the, than the large and, and built, you know, mechanisms in our eyes and ears that, that enable us to react to the to the small things. And probably the same thing with regard to valuing lives, you know, that, that uh, when, when all of this was, was evolving at first, you know, the world was smaller. Our world was, you know, was right in front of us, you know, protect yourself, few people around you. You didn't have to think about protecting thousands or millions of people on the other side of the earth that just didn't exist. It's interesting that you're, you reminded me of something Barbara Mellers was telling me about Look, the th- if she could say three things that we should know about decision-making, one is that there are better ways or good ways to make a decision. Two, there are these predictable ways we go awry. And three, try to construct context for yourself where you're more likely to go in the first direction rather than the second. And I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying and thinking about that and just wondering about if our system, our biology is telling us that the 88th life is worth more, but it's not It's not equal to a whole nother person. What is it that's driving you the other way? What did you learn about either ethics or about some other aspect of, of social science that makes you say, no, 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 we got to slow down here. And we do have to treat that 88th life as the, when we do our, our determination about what policies to pursue with regard to healthcare or anything, that we've got to treat it as another unique life. We can't just let our, our intuition, our system one thinking drive the decision here. What are you grounding it in, if not our biology and our systems then? I think it's because over a long period of time, our, our brain evolved. 
and became capable of abstract and conceptual thinking, ethical thinking, you know, we can we can appreciate the fact that we learned how to how to count and we we can subtract eighty seven from eighty eight and see there's one additional life and that there's no reason to devalue that life just because there's other people at risk. You know, and the question is, you know, if 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 a life is valuable, why should you why why does it become less valuable if there are other people who are also at risk? And we can do that kind of thinking, you know, the, what Kahneman calls slow thinking, you know, and that's linked to, you know, all kinds of, you know, ethics and morality. And, you know, this has become the, the basis of fields like, you know, risk assessment, risk analysis, you know, technical fields that where people do this slow quantitative thinking to assess values and to guide decisions. So we can do that. The problem is that we, t- we tend not to because we think we can do the job as well with our gut, you know, and it's a lot easier. And so we go with our gut. And as I say, most of the time that, you know, that may work for us. And other times it really uh, causes problems. And, and that's what those of us who study this are trying to do. We're trying to figure out, well, when can we trust our, our gut feelings? When do we need to slow down and, and do the do careful analysis or listen to others who are doing careful analysis? Right. That's, the, that's the key factor now. I, I remember reading about this and listening to people talk about it and intellectually agreeing with it or assenting to it, and then being very disappointed in myself that it still doesn't feel like I need to. <laughs> that the that the feelings uh, the the feelings didn't update right away to the to the new understanding. Like okay, I'm going to use calculations. I'm going to I'm going to evaluate risk. I'm going to think about expected value and utility. I, I began learning about those things and found that I could do it. And if I did what you suggest, which is pause and deploy that system to thinking, but it didn't immediately change how I felt. And I don't know if, if you've talked with any decision makers over the years about that or through your research, looked into that, like, does it eventually shift over? Does the feeling start to shift? Or is this just an ongoing self-management problem? Well, I think some people are trained to think analytically. You know, uh, like, I mean, economists, are, I think, are more analytic than people in other other disciplines. You know, this is the way they think. Or, or people, um, you know, in law, you know, uh, lawyers, judges, you know, this is a, a their world is that of, of argument. They, they, maybe not quantitative calculations, but uh, they use uh, they use logic, reason, argument, and that's the way they they think. So I think we can train ourselves to to be more careful and more analytic. But it's, it's as you say, it's, it's difficult, and in some cases we may not adequately achieve, you know, the right balance between analysis and feeling. And in that case, then I think you you have to say, well, okay, if we're thinking in ways that we really don't, you know, find would find hard to justify, maybe we have to change the situation. Maybe we have to restructure the decision setting, that in ways that will will recognize that we need to be prodded or pushed, or in today's word, we use the word nudge to do the right thing. And, 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 or maybe certain types of judgments and decisions need to be taken out of our direct control. That is, we may need to do, do the calculations carefully and then, and then build those calculations in, you know, into the system and take that away from our, our gut feelings because we can't trust those feelings. Or maybe we should turn them over to machines. People always say, well, machines, we, you know, we know that machines get faster and stronger. They're faster than we are. They have better memories. They're 
stronger than humans, but they can never replace the human uh, sense of, of morality, for example. And I said, no, wait a minute, because what we, what we find in this trusting of the feelings that our feelings are often not moral. You know, it's, I think it's not moral to devalue life just because other people are at risk. I think that's a mistake. And you can, you know, and if, and if you have a, have a decision-making system that's controlled by machines, like, you know, like maybe some form of transportation, you know, automated transportation system, is, and you want to put values, you wouldn't put a, a value function into, you wouldn't build it into the machine in a way that devalues lives when they're more at risk. You would make it kind of linear, you, or you'd have to make a decision. One decision might be, well, if you believe every human life is intrinsically of equal value, then you want this machine to react more strongly, proportionally more strongly as the number of lives increase. You want to build in what we call a straight line. It's just adding or multiplying, you know. And that's, again, this is a very long answer to your question about the arithmetic of compassion. <laughs> it was. And I wondered if we drifted over it, like, did we drift into psychic numbing, which is a whole other area of yours? Or would you treat that distinctly? No, no, that, that's said that the arithmetic of compassion and numbing is part of it. The arithmetic of the, the, the compassion is a feeling. And I, as I said, the, our feelings are, are innumerate. They do arithmetic, but they do it wrong. You know, one plus one does not equal two. It's, it's something less than two. And in some cases, it's less than one. So one thing that was not built into the value function that Kahneman and Tversky put forth, which gets, it keeps increasing, but gets flatter and flatter, is what I would call the collapse of compassion. That not only do we become insensitive, we don't see the difference between 88 lives and 87. We actually feel less concerned or we start to, you know, we have less feeling for the larger numbers than for the smaller numbers. We, and when the numbers get really big, they're just numbers. You know, we say that, you know, statistics are human beings with the tears dried off. There's no tears to them. These are, these are emotionless numbers that, that don't register we don't appreciate the reality that these numbers represent because uh, a main element of, of meaning for information is the feelings that that information creates in you. Okay. And, and these big numbers are creating no feelings. They're just numbers. And so we are lacking the understanding of what those numbers mean. You also talk about the false sense of powerlessness that we can get with very large numbers or with statistics of so one child starving. We feel like we can do something. I remember you talking about an experiment or an evaluation you did there. Can you say some more about that? There are three pillars to the arithmetic of compassion. And the first is, is psychic numbing, this insensitivity as the numbers increase, uh, which is, again, a peculiar kind of arithmetic. You know, and we say that the more who die, the less we care. I mean, that's, that's numbing. I think it's uh, irrational. The second thing we, we learned in, in studies of when people help others and when they don't is that you know, we help others first because they need our help. And second, we feel good about helping them. E economists call this the warm glow of satisfaction that we get when you do something good for other people. It's a motivator. And what we learned through our experiments is that if you have the ability to help someone, but your attention is drawn to, to others that unfortunately you cannot help, you're less likely to help that person because it doesn't feel as good. In other words, you could still, you have the same ability to help them, but it doesn't feel as good to help them because the bad feelings that you get when you think about those you're not helping enter your brain and mingle with the good feeling 
that you have about helping and devalue it. It's like the brain averages, inappropriately averages in irrelevant information that is carrying counter feelings. And so it doesn't feel as good to help this, this person anymore. And, and you're less likely to help them, even though you still can. So again, this is again a form of arithmetic that is irrelevant numbers from outside come in and devalue the relevant, the feelings towards the relevant numbers. You know, it's a, there is an arithmetic aspect of that. So that's why we, we, we keep that as part of the, the, the deadly arithmetic of compassion. So, so numbing and this false sense of inefficacy, which we, by the way, we, we, we give it kind of a jargony name, pseudo-inefficacy. Okay. It's, yeah, like it's it. a false. It makes you feel in that, you know, that you're not effective when you really are. So it's a weird word. But anyway, so numbing and pseudo-inefficacy are problems with our feelings. The third pillar of arithmetic of compassion is something we call the prominence effect, which, is, which results from slow thinking. You know, the, the numbing and, and this inefficacy, that happens when we think quickly with our feelings. Because, you know, if you're thinking slowly, then you know you shouldn't not help this person just because you can't help others. You know, slow thinking hopefully would, would not succumb to that, but fast thinking does. Now, the third pillar, which is the, what we call the prominence effect, is a slow thinking problem. The first study, I call it the more important dimension effect. And then we change that to the prominence effect, you know, that, that some, some qualities of a decision are more prominent, which means it's hard to make trade-offs. They, they dominate every trade-off. And then a few years later, when I started to think about genocide, I realized this, this was an explanation for why we turned a blind eye to genocide over and over and over again. After the Holocaust, you know, we swore, this is so horrific, we, you heard the phrase, never again would we allow this to happen. Then if you look, you know, a uh, half century later, you look, you see that over and over and again, dozens of times, there were nothing like the Holocaust, you know, it's a unique event, but there were genocides and other mass atrocities happen all the time. And as we speak, they are happening in multiple places around the world. And we decry these, we say, this is horrible, this is wrong. You know, we say that we, we value the lives that are being abused, but we don't do anything. We don't act on our values. And the reason, I, and so I've been, I've been arguing that one of, the, one of the key reasons we don't act in a, way, in a way that's consistent with our values for human life you know, is because often, typically action carries some costs. It threatens our, what I would say, various costs to our own security. It is dangerous, costly, you know, to to go into a sovereign nation that's murdering its citizens for political reasons, you know. And when it comes down to finally making that choice, our own security is prominent over the lives of other people who were probably numb to. I mean, we know that there's a lot of people being killed, but they're statistics. So that again brings in the psychic numbing. But basically, when we come have to choose, we go with our security and we fail to act. We, we turn a blind eye to it and protect ourselves. We don't want to, to risk our military. We don't want to spend a lot of money. We don't want to anger some allies that we're trying to, to work with politically who may support the the regime that's killing its its citizens. You know, all of these things are costs, security related costs, which are prominent. And it does, and and it's not that we're we're kind of averaging these things out on a balance scale. It's not a balance scale. It is an all or none, almost an all or none kind of thing. That if we go for security, it doesn't matter how many other how many lives are lost because of it. Whether it's a thousand, a, a million, a hundred million, 
this sort of thing. And so, so that's the third pillar of the flawed arithmetic of compassion that devalues lives in that when protecting those lives conflicts with our security. Okay, so I think I've got it now. So there's psychic numbing, there's the pseudo-inefficacy and the prominence effect, right? And is it, is it a little too strong for me to say this? But what it sounds to me like I'm hearing is, and you're saying that these things lead us astray to the point that they are that they are making us pursue unethical policies or decisions, that we actually, we actually behave in a way that we know is unethical. Yes, but we probably don't feel that we are doing something unethical when we're doing it. And that relates to another, another concept. Let, let me just take another step further beyond genocide. A couple of years ago, I was asked to take a look at, at nuclear weapons. And I started to think about war and you know, go back and read up on the history. Daniel Ellsberg, famous from the Pentagon Papers, he, he was a young analyst in the 1960s. He was trained in decision-making, operations and research and decision-making at Harvard, and got a job with the Rand Corporation. He was privy to being uh, sitting in the room when the people who were doing nuclear weapons strategies were planning what to do with the nuclear weapons after the end of uh, World War II, and, and we were building up our, our weapons. And, and he saw the plans now that the Germans and the Japanese uh, were no longer our enemies, but it was the Soviet Union was the evil empire, and we were worried that they were they wanted to control you know control the world. And we had nuclear weapons aimed uh, at cities in the Soviet Union and, and China at 600 million people. You know, and he saw the numbers. He saw that those in control of nuclear weapons had targeted hundreds of millions of people for death. You know, and again, I thought, okay, th to protect our security. Again, this is security prominence. It's psychic numbing. You know, what is 600 million? And not only that, it could be more than that because it didn't take into account nuclear winter or, you know, the fact that it might end civilization <laughs> to, to start a nuclear war. So all of this is an insensitivity to quantity, to psychic numbing in the sake of security, you know, that is uh, even more evident in warfare than it was in, in genocide and other humanitarian so, abuses. Uh, so you know, that's both, both horrifying and just, just sort of stunning. And I appreciate the work you did there. I wonder if we could bring it forward a little bit more to the current situation with the pandemic and ask, does this framework have any lessons for us about what we should do to structure decision-making for ourselves or for our organizations, schools, businesses, or for our society with regard to COVID and what we, how we should think about it or how we should feel about it, and if those two things aren't the same? Absolutely. You see the, the, the same phenomena, the same cognitive limitations and flawed arithmetic of compassion at work with with COVID as as in these other contexts and a few other cognitive issues that hopefully could be addressed with education and, and awareness. So clearly, as the the numbers of lives, you know, the the numbers of cases, number of deaths increases. Again, we we see that we we have become numb to these these statistics. You know that you know when we. Except when we hit a new uh, a new level, like if we if we hit two hundred thousand, there's some numbers that ha that are special, and and we pay attention to those numbers. A hundred thousand, 
Now it's 200,000. Now it's 300,000. It's closing in on 400,000. When it hits 400,000, there'll be a little extra attention given to this. But we we're not going to feel any different. We don't feel any different from 300,000 to 400,000. You know, it doesn't seem to make that much difference. So there's a, there's a form of numbing. Gut-feeling-based minds don't understand exponential growth. We vastly underestimate where it's leading and how fast it's going to be before we're overwhelmed by it. We need to to do the math, the slow thinking, you know, we, we know how to, to do these projections mathematically, and we need to, and our experts can, can do that. We need to listen to our experts and not to our own gut feelings here. So that's a very important lesson, I think, when we're facing cognitive biases of all kinds, is that in, in, we, we need to pay attention to people who have thought this out slowly and carefully and, and listen to their advice. I hadn't thought about that before, that it's that they're doing the slow thinking for us, that they're the ones. It's like it's like outsourcing our system, too, if we trust experts. Yes. Yes. I have some some questions that are a little more tied to the work that we're doing with the Alliance. So, for example, I'm wondering with the things that you know now about the arithmetic of compassion and decision making in general, what are some of the key decision skills that you'd like to see young people learning in school? I think that at an early age, we need to impress on youth the importance of trying to think think carefully about problems, not to just go with their first fast reaction to something. You know, that think carefully, uh, listen to others, respect others, you know, respect other viewpoints. I think we should teach kids to kind of respect the importance of decision-making as, as a thoughtful enterprise. It's amazing how even at the top level of government in the most important decisions that our, our government officials or our military can make, like whether or not to uh, use a nuclear weapon against an enemy. And this, this decision is given to the president of the United States to have the, you know, the who could act with sole authority on that. We don't give the president any training in decision-making about this. It's the most important decision a human being could ever, could ever make. And we don't sit them down and try to help them understand how to think about this decision, how to structure this decision, you know, how to make sure you've got you know, the, the best set of alternatives to choose among. That's the first thing. Think about what are your objectives in this decision? What, what are your values that these objectives are supposed to be fulfilling and so forth? And then think about, well, now, how do you put this together you know, in a careful decision on which the fate of civilization could depend? We don't do that. There's no respect. It's like, okay, you're the new president. Okay, uh, you've, you've now got, here's, the, here's how many uh, nuclear weapons we have. You know, it's thousands. You're in charge. And, you know, we'll give you intelligence about what's going on, the usual. And, and you know, good luck. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's, it's very strange that we haven't, we haven't thought about some of these very important decisions and how to prepare people to make them in specific ways. I'm wondering... Let's pretend it worked. Let's pre- let's pre- I I plan that it will, but assume I should say not pretend. Assume that we've succeeded and decision education really is something that every young person is empowered with or or is taught the skills and dispositions of. What do you think would look different in our society when we succeed in this mission? I think that that we would have a society that is more harmonious, that is that where there's more equality 
because we would realize that to have a society where we have where we have increasing uh, levels of inequity is a recipe for disaster. Not only does it make lead to a lot of people who are very unsuccessful, unhappy, miserable, unhealthy, but it also will lead to conflict that will you know, <laughs> and violent conflict. We would reduce that kind of, of, of inequality that leads to a divisiveness and violence. I think that people would be uh, would be healthier. They would make uh, uh, better choices and decisions that would affect their health. They would make better decisions about how to manage their uh, finances, their money. I, I think that they would make better decisions about the relevant to their their safety. And they would also demand that authorities in charge of these various components of our life, you know, health and environment and security, make better decisions. So I think it would basically better governments. Yeah. Which then would affect us in all kinds of better ways. I think, it, you know, this is how central decision making is to the, to the well-being of our society. So those are the easy questions. <laughs> now, now I've got I've got two last questions that are much more challenging. If you only got to pass down one tool or skill or lesson to the next generation of decision makers, what would it be? I would say it's it's critical thinking. Okay. You know, in my sense, of the definition is a tool that you know is, is what decision education is about to think critically. Okay. Appreciate that. That was so that was the first hard one. <laughs> the second one is uh, this podcast is actually for adults who are interested in this whole area who didn't get the benefit of this in school. What's a book that you would recommend for our listeners who are keen to improve their own decision making? Again, this is a this is a tough one, but I would say uh Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. The book is it's not an easy you know, book, but I mean, it has sold 15 to 20 million copies. So people are buying it. And now, now Kahneman has said he thinks fewer than 20% ha have read more than, you know, a, a fraction of the book. You know, that people, people, it's a book that you can skim, you can go back and forth, you know, but, but this has been, been bought and read and extolled as valuable by people in all walks of life, all kinds of disciplines. It's, it's been amazing how people have picked this up. It, it was published in 2011, was now almost 10 years out. And, and, and even today, you know, people, new people are discovering it and raving about it. And, you know, so there must be something good, right. good in that. And it's all about what we're talking about, about the ways in which, uh, you know, uh, fast and slow thinking either help us or harm us. And so, sure, you can't understand maybe everything in it, but it, it was attempted to be written for the, for the broader audience. It's still, it's not a simple read, but it's, it's got a lot of valuable insights in it. So we have a little internal bet about whether any guest on the podcast when we ask that question is automatically going to go with that book or if they'll, <laughs> or if they'll offer one. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a fantastic read and it's one that you can take time to go back in and steep yourself in the ideas. They just keep on improving the way that you think and uh, make decisions. I'm not going to well, promote I, my I, own book, The, the Feeling yeah, of Risk. Yeah, I was going to say, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> the is Feeling it? of Risk <laughs> is if you're interested in, in understanding how the mind works when we're facing a risk, which we are often do, then, then that book is a good introduction. To Does the, the author way. know what he's talking about, or is this just one of the... <laughs> I'm, I'm a little biased. All right, fair enough. Well, the other thing that, that, that it would be great, and maybe you have linked to it, I think we've linked to you as the link to the Arithmetic of Compassion website. Yes, right. Yeah. 
I was going to ask, actually, we can sign off after this, but if listeners want to learn more about your work, as opposed to decision-making just in general, can they follow you on social media? Should they go to a particular website? Where would you like them to go first? I would go or to just... the Arithmetic of Compassion or to okay. to, to decisionresearch.org and to look me up there. And I'll put in a little plug for our audience. I got a chance to hear you talking particularly about nuclear decision-making. It was fascinating. Paul, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Really appreciate it. And I feel like I learned a lot. I know it's an interesting topic that most of us never heard about in school. And it clearly is important to how we make decisions as a society. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Joe. Thanks for what you're doing with the, the Alliance for Improving Our Decision-Making. Very important. Well, thanks for helping. <laughs> At the Alliance for Decision Education, our mission is to improve lives by empowering students with essential decision skills. We are building a national movement to ensure decision education is part of every student's learning experience. Through this podcast, we are raising awareness about the movement, but we need your help. Please share, tweet, and sign the petition on our website, allianceforDecisionEducation.org. If there is someone you think would be great for us to interview for a future episode, or if you have a question about decision-making that you'd like us to explore on the podcast, email us at connect at allianceforDecisionEducation.org. Also, ratings on Apple Podcasts are greatly appreciated. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in your favorite app so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you, and I hope you join us again soon.